Well, we during our ordinary time this year are studying the book of Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible on your, in your lap or on your smartphone or whatever, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 7 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is one of the letters in the New Testament that's known as the prison letters because Paul's writing from prison, but not in a prison cell the way you would think of Alcatraz or something today, uh, but more like something like house arrest, but would have been chained either by wrist or ankle to a guard. And so while his body is confined in this way, uh, as we've been reading in these first 14 chapters of Ephesians, Uh, his heart is praising God for the deliverance that he has through Jesus. So just think about that for a moment. While his body's confined, his mind is thinking about this enormous, universal, cosmic deliverance that God is doing through Jesus. And so Paul's telling us what's really happening in this God-created, God-bathed, Christ-saved, God- and Spirit-blessed world that in spite of what's happening around him, Paul's mind is thinking about how God in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is at work. So sin, which is going to be one of the main topics in these verses this morning, sin shrinks us in every way. And Paul is trying to enlarge us by describing the ways that God is working amongst us. And so he gives us this action of God in these seven verbs that we just read. Blessed, chose, destined, bestowed, lavished, made known, gathered up. This is the language that Paul is supposing would reorient us to what's actually happening. I mean, it's not that our present circumstances are not real. And it's not that our present circumstances are unimportant. It's just that our present circumstances find their meaning in this larger overarching thing that God's up to. So if you look at verse 7 where we start this morning, Paul says, In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption is normally the, the kind of idea that you would think about if you're a slave or if you're a prisoner or if you have land that's being held by someone else, like maybe you owe it in a debt or something. So a prisoner, a slave, or land is redeemed. It's bought back. And in this case, Paul says this happens through Jesus' blood. Now, I've been thinking about it this week, and I thought about it again as I heard Scott read the gospel. That these sentences can sound terribly theological. Like, what the heck is redemption? And I don't think anybody really gets blood. I mean, not really. We, I mean, we sing about it, and, and we know it's a part of Christian theology, and, and if we're honest, it's a bit icky, and it's tragic. I mean, it's all kinds of things. So, but to Paul, evidently, it was really important as an explainer of what's really going on in the world. And so what I want to try to do for you this morning is to not just sort of bring these things down to some sort of understandable and practical level, but I want you to understand the personal nature of what's happening here. Because things like grace, redemption, those kinds of things are not meant to be abstract theological ideas. And to the degree they are, they really don't make any difference in our life. 
But to the degree that we can make them personal, something going on between us and God, it makes a difference. So I want you to consider this little story that I think will maybe show you how deeply personal it is that you're twice bought and I'm twice bought. Twice owned, you might say, having been created by God and then redeemed by him. In a city on the shore of a great lake lived a small boy who loved the water and sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail just at the water's edge. Well, one day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out to the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day in town, walking along the shops, he saw his beautiful boat in a window. Well, he approached the shop owner and announced his ownership, only to be told that it was not his, for the owner had paid a fisherman good money for the boat. If the boy wanted the boat, the shop owner told him, he'd have to pay the price. And so the boy set himself to work doing anything and everything until finally he returned to the store with the money. And at last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, and this is what Paul wants you to hear the father saying to you this morning, you are twice mine now because I made you and I have bought you back. Paul did not mean to be writing systematic theology. He did, not, he did not mean to be writing Christology. Or to throw out another big word, soteriology, the study of what it means to be saved. Paul didn't mean to be throwing out things that we would then put in these things we call systematic theologies. He meant to say something very deeply personal, the creator God who created you. Even when you had wandered off, and gone far away from him in sin, he bought you back. You're twice his, Paul wants you to know, because you're incredibly loved. So what Paul's picturing is something like this, that we, God's creation, were in the slave market of sin. You know, uh, the ride at Disneyland, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Remember that, the scene in Pirates of the Caribbean where you go around in the boat and there's those ladies who are in the slave house and, you know, and there was, and the one, I think she's in red and all the pirates are saying, we wants the ready, right? Remember that? This is the picture that Paul has in his mind. Well, not exactly that, but uh, we're in the slave market of sin and God is buying us back. We're being redeemed. First Peter says, by the precious blood of the lamb. The writer of Hebrews says that it's by the blood of Jesus that we have eternal redemption. Jesus said of himself that I came to give my life a ransom. And lastly, in Revelation, you know, those great scenes of worship in Revelation 4 and 5 especially, the worship revolves around this. You were slain, and with your blood, you purchased people. And so Paul wants us to know this intensely personal thing of what it means that in Jesus we have the forgiveness of sin. That sin, Paul knows, means that our mind and our wills and our bodies are in bondage. Now, it's easiest to think about this in terms of anybody you know who's an addict. But you don't have to be an addict to know that your mind and will and body are enslaved and in bondage 
All of us in this room, addict or not, know something of that. And so what Paul sees in his mind is this loosing that's happening, that those of us who are bound are being loosed. And of course, the major controlling metaphor or analogy for this in the Bible is the Passover, that God's people were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them. Or if you think of the captivity in Babylon, etc., this is, this is the controlling idea of having been enslaved and then being set free. And this, of course, is what Isaiah is talking about in our reading from the Old Testament this morning when he says, I've slept away, swept away your offenses like a cloud and your sins like the morning mist. And so return to me, for I have redeemed you. I've bought you back. And then Paul says that this happens in verse 8 in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. That is to say that we're now a free people, but not just free in the sense that we have absence of constraint, but a couple of other things that are very important. Free of penalty. And this is where the whole kind of Protestant notion comes from, that there's nothing to do with works or meritoriousness. This is the kind of verse that the reformers would have very much spent time on because Paul wants us to know that there's no more penalty, there's no more punishments. All the things that our misdeeds would have deserved are now all taken away. And that we're not just barely free, that we're abundantly free. This is the whole notion of lavishing on us. So verse nine tells us that it was with all wisdom and understanding that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment. Now look at that verse with me and, and just think about the power of these words. It's with wisdom and understanding. And that this good pleasure he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times had reached their fulfillment. Now, what this helps us understand is that life is not random. And it helps us understand even when Jesus came into Galilee announcing the gospel, um, I mean, I don't think very many of us in this room would intuitively understand when, why Jesus came to announce the gospel. He said, and this is the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. Why were those the first words out of his mouth? Nothing about sin, heaven, hell, death, blood, none of that stuff. What Jesus is first conscious of is that the time is fulfilled. There's something pregnant about this moment where he comes into public announcing, embodying, and demonstrating the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. This is what he says the gospel is all about. So there's something about time. And, and again, what it tells us is that life isn't random, that there is a divine intention, that history has meaning and purpose. And of course, this, what this demands from us is humility. Because if you're honest, in my opinion, we don't know enough to either protest or approve. I mean, I don't know why that 14-year-old girl at Bob Nanny's school died of an aneurysm this week. But I don't know enough to protest or approve. Or my friend, the rector of Truro Church in Washington, D.C., why his wife Elizabeth suddenly discovered to have a brain tumor this week. I don't know. But I do know this. 
life is not random. And that these things somehow find their meaning in that God is purposing something here. So while I can't either have enough hubris to protest or approve what God's doing, what we can have is a kind of adoration that we're in the presence of a God who cannot be used or packaged or grasped even except for on his own terms. So verse 10 then is really the key verse. Some scholars would say this is the key verse in the whole book of Ephesians. And if you look at it with me, Paul says that all this is happening in order to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Or the way the message has it, I think is helpful. That God set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him. That's a very technical Greek term there, the idea of being summed up in him. And, And I probably consulted about 15 commentaries this week and, and the notion is that all the things in the entire universe are going to find their cohesion and their meaning in Jesus. Conflicts, fights, wars, irrationalities, discrepancies, loose ends, unsolved problems, fragmented relationships... And for Paul, the kind of cosmic example is the kind of thing that would help us understand that girl with the aneurysm or my friend Elizabeth Bauckham. For Paul, the great sign that all this is actually going to happen is that God did the unthinkable in bringing together Jews and Gentiles. That was the great unthinkable. Way more than we think of racism today way different than we think of even as the 1% and the 99%. I mean, we can hardly even think about Jew and Gentile would have been a standard way of talking about the impossible, the absolute, total, complete impossibility. That could never be reconciled. That was unimaginable. But Paul says, this is what God has done, and this is a sign that it's all going to happen this way because of verse 11, and we're back here now to God's pre-thinking about this stuff, where Paul says, it was in Jesus that we are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and his will. So if you, we mentioned this a bit yesterday, but let, or last week, but let me just say another word about this business of predestination or election. I think a great way to think about this is to see Jesus as the first of a kind and a model of election. That he, because of the determined purpose of the Father, was sent. But Jesus is not mere instrument. You're not like a shovel in your garage. So you say, I want to dig a hole, I need a shovel, and so you go find an instrument, the means by which to do that. This is not what's happening. As we've said, this is a very personal thing. So Jesus is set forth in the New Testament as somebody who's free and doing responsible service with his Father. And so in that sense, he's the steward of God. Just think about that as like a title, capital letters, the steward of God. And this, of course, is the model for us, that grace is personal. Grace, again, is not abstract. It's not a theological notion. It is deeply personal without person and person. 
Without the personhood of God and our personhood, there is no need or anything for grace. Grace is not first and foremost a theological idea. Grace is first and foremost something that emerges out of a relationship between these two persons. So look, let me say to you one of the most important things I have ever said to you. Your sin is not the grounds for grace. My sin is not the grounds for grace. Grace finds its essence in God before anybody had sinned. Grace is not like goo gone. We got some gum that stuck to the floor. What are we going to do about that? And so you think God said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll start a chemical plant and, and I'll get some uh, chemical engineers and we'll come up with a, a patent for goo gone and we'll just, that's what grace is. We'll just spray a little goo gone on this sin. Now you might say, well, Todd, why are you making a point of this? It's because your whole life is about, sin, about grace It's in those moments where you have irreconcilable things and things that don't make sense and that things are out of your control and when life isn't happening the way it's supposed to happen, those are grace moments too. And when babies are born and people get married and you celebrate Father's Day around the table, those are grace moments too. And when you live the bulk of your life apart from God's grace because you view grace only to be a potion to be poured on your sin, we're greatly limiting this enormous purpose that Paul has in his mind while chained to this guard. Paul's thinking, that's really real. I can feel the iron on my wrist. But Paul knows that there's this whole other big real thing that's happening which makes meaning of that iron on his wrist. Caesar does not make iron meaning of that. Are we connecting here? It's not Caesar that makes meaning of that. God's grace does. That which he's purposing to do in the world, that's what makes meaning of it. It's not the blacksmith who forged that iron cuff that makes meaning of it, nor the guard, nor the history of the Caesars. Paul knows that something else is going on. And so Paul wants us to just think about, and I want us to think about as we close this morning, what's it like, what's it really mean when this plan of heaven actually unfolds and it comes to earth? And Paul wants us to know it means something like this, that all the unity that has been lost between the intention of God and what's unfolded in the last thousands and thousands of years, that unity that's been lost between the intention of God and what's actually happening, that Jesus unites all that has become divided and hostile. Whether it's cells that go wrong in our body and they're divided and hostile and we call it cancer, or the division and hostility that happens in friendships or marriages or or in cities or between the 1% and the 99% or between Egypt and Israel or whatever, those disunities and those hostilities, those are all gonna be united in Jesus. So in our gospel reading, when they let that man down through the roof and he appears in front of Jesus and Jesus says, which is simpler to say, I forgive your sins or get up and start walking? Jesus says, well, just so it's clear that I, the son of man, am authorized to do either or both, get up and walk. 
This is a great story of healing. There's a lot of different angles we could take on this. A great angle here to be talked about with the faith of the guys who let him down through the, the roof and all that. But that is not why Luke records this story, as, as fascinating as those things are. Luke records this story to say Jesus has authority. He is the steward of God. And in the same way, Jesus unites the brokenness of this man's physical body and how he unites him to his father again in forgiving of his sins. This is a picture. This is a little parable, the ultimate power of almighty God in his son. And how at some place he's going to say to the whole cosmos, roll up your bedroll and get up and walk in the way that God intended you to be. All you heavens, all you earths, all you universes out there, roll up your bedroll and get up and be what God has called you to be. In a moment, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed. And we've said many times in each other's presence, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. When you say that this morning, I want you to say it in this new way. That when you say you believe in the forgiveness of sins, this is what you're saying. You're not just saying, you know, I was angry at somebody yesterday. Or I drank a little too much this week or whatever the deal is. You're saying that, but not merely. And the grace that comes when I stand up and say, the Lord forgive you, does not have to do merely with the forgiveness of those sins. So it, of course, includes it, but it catches up your whole life and the context in which your life is taking place. So that the psalmist says, God is going to separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. As Jeremiah said, I'm going to forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Micah said, God will hurl their sins into the depths of the sea. And John, you know, that beloved friend of Jesus said, if we confess our sins, that is to say, if we agree with God about the places in which our lives are living out of alignment with what he's doing in Christ. That's what confess means, basically to agree. If we agree that we're living outside of what God's doing, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then in a moment after the creed, after we've said, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins, Scott's gonna lead us in Eucharist, and he's gonna say something like this. This is the blood of my covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we do every week. This is not about candles and flowers and gold and silver and little cheesy pieces of crackers and cheap wine. This is not rote. This is week in and week out, we consciously place ourselves into this story in which God is redeeming the whole world through the shed blood of the steward of God. Amen.